Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Bailey Troutman. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. Social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are all spaces in which people post their thoughts, photos, ideas, experiences, and much more. One could argue that these platforms are effectively just information sharing spaces, places where people can all come together digitally in the same way that they might in a public space. Instead of barber shops, salons, or community centers, now we can share information on these platforms. Is this a fair association, however? In a time where one billionaire is buying Twitter and Facebook and Instagram are under the control of another, is it really the case that these platforms are public spaces or are they private spaces masquerading as public ones? Why does this matter? Despite long-standing claims about the internet being a utopia for democracy, the realities we face remind us to press further into these assumptions or narratives and to even imagine how we could do better. What would it look like for platforms to look more like other kinds of public spaces in our lives? This month, we're going to have a conversation with someone whose career has involved building several influential online platforms. Lately, however, He's looking back to older kinds of public spaces, libraries, parks, and more. Let's explore the question, can the internet be a public space? Eli Pariser is a New York Times bestselling author, TED Talk speaker, and has been routinely featured in popular press, including Wired, Time Magazine, The Harvard Business Review, and more. He's been involved with building platforms like MoveOn, Upworthy, and Avaz. Eli is now the co-director of New Public, an organization working to help inspire and connect designers and technologists to build more flourishing digital public spaces. Eli's book, The Filter Bubble, How the New Personalized Web is Changing What We Read and How We Think, was one that inspired me greatly when I was an undergraduate student and was the first time I learned about the ways the internet was curated just for me. I'm beyond excited to have this opportunity to have the conversation with you today, Eli. So thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad to be on. So we'll just kind of jump right in. This first question here is is really about kind of taking a step back and understanding more about your early career motivations. So I kind of want to start with the question, like, what was it that first excited you about the internet? Well, you know, I grew up in uh, a, a small town in in Maine, farmhouse kind of in the woods. And there was not a lot going on in my immediate vicinity. And so, you know, what the internet meant to me initially was just kind of a way to connect with the world beyond beyond that town. And, you know, but I, but I think I, you know, I grew up reading Wired and thinking about the future and having this kind of like techno optimistic nerdy perspective where, you know, the, the internet represented this, this future of cross connection of being able to kind of leave your identity and your, your physical self behind um, and go commune in in cyberspace. And obviously, you know, I, I don't feel like things turned out that way, but that's, that's kind of, what drew me to it at the beginning. I'll say the other thing, you know, that really from very early on drew me to the internet was the sense that it could, that that these new technologies could be democratizing in some sense, even though I don't feel like they are as inherently democratizing as I think I believe then, I still have some of that belief that we can use these tools in service of a healthier democracy, in service of of more power decentralizing toward toward individual people. And so that's that's a through line from then to now. Yeah, and I love that too, because I also think that that resonates for me as well, kind of just growing up and then, you know, living somewhere that was very rural and having the internet kind of enter that space and feeling like, oh, I can connect with other people or I could connect to more information maybe than I had 
at my fingertips, you know, or disposal. So I do like that. That was also kind of a, a similarity for you is that's, you know, how you started thinking about it and how you started interacting with it. And that kind of brings me to my second question, which is really about how your early work kind of focused on the ways that those interactions online were also connecting people, but at the same time, kind of isolating people into their own filter bubbles, which you termed, um, where instead of, you know, seeing all of the information that, you know, we might have assumed we were getting access to, instead, we were seeing kind of spaces that were curated to fit what we wanted to see or like anticipating what we wanted to see. So could you explain a bit more about that part of your work and like, what is a filter bubble? The filter bubble was really kind of when I started to reckon with the fact that the that early kind of utopian vision for the internet that I was energized by, that I was excited about, wasn't really materializing or didn't really seem to be materializing. And I, I started having these kind of moments where, you know, I would kind of check like, okay... I know we talked about these technologies decentralizing power, but is that the society that we're really in? And if not, why? And I got very interested in the concentration of power in the hands of a few of these big platforms and what it meant that they were kind of this choke point on digital communication. And so really, you know, I, I, I started exploring the, the filter bubble just to try to understand what was going on on the internet, that it wasn't decentralizing things, that it wasn't moving power in the way that I was expecting. And that led me to kind of consider how problematic it was that a few big companies were controlling, you know, how people communicate. Yeah. And so kind of the focus then on this, this aspect, right, this like kind of personalization of the web almost um, what was it like? What was it about that that was most important for you to share with others? Like you're thinking through this work, and you're like, I got to tell people about this. Like, what was it that kind of drove you to get to that point, or to feel like I've you know done enough of this re- research now that I know this is going on, and now I can talk about it a little bit more? Well, I, you know, in classic like um, digital design fashion, you know, I'm, I'm I like to test things out. And so I actually like wrote a little mini version of that essay and I shared it with a few people. And I basically said, like, is this interesting? Is this useful? Do you agree with this? And, you know, number one, it was just striking how many people who I thought were like fairly, fairly literate in how digital spaces were working were, were surprised, you know, it was new to really consider the level of personalization that was already happening in 2011 uh, or 10, I guess this was with Google and and Facebook. So that was really kind of eye-opening. And then also, you know, that some of these consequences that you could imagine from having much more sort of personally targeted media were were also pretty eye-opening for people. And so that's really kind of uh it was it was on the basis of those responses that I started working on the book uh as a book. Yeah. And again, like I kind of mentioned in the bio as well, like I did read that book actually in a media literacy class in undergrad. And it again was kind of what you mentioned experiencing with some of your other colleagues or like acquaintances you had shared this with. It was eye-opening for me as someone who you know had grown up seeing this technology develop. And all of a sudden I realized for the first time, like, oh, I didn't know that, you know, when I searched something on Google, I was getting not all of the information that was available, but kind of a snapshot of that information based on obviously things I had liked before, what I was kind of interested in and what they were anticipating I would want to see. Um, So yeah, I think, you know, on the surface, it might seem like, oh yeah, absolutely, this is happening. And maybe even today for listeners, they might, you know, think about it more frequently because we do see so many advertisements now in our feeds that are, you know, based on our previous searches. But, you know, at at the start of this and kind of like when you were talking about this originally, I think it was it was definitely something that most people probably weren't aware of that was happening. And and I think this awareness today is super important, but also even we can't assume that everyone knows that even now. So it's great that you've kind of done that work and been able to put this out there for people like me <laughs> to read and to, you know, to learn more about. And that kind of leads me then to this other aspect of the world we're in today, which is 
you know, we, we've seen the congressional hearings, you know, with Mark Zuckerberg and like Facebook and how they're kind of saying things like we're information sharing spaces, right? Like we mm-hmm. we're kind of, you know, helping people connect with one another and being able to share with each other. And I was wondering, like, how do you see your work kind of entering those conversations? And like, how do you situate the role that these companies are playing in democracy more broadly? Yeah, well, that's a big question. And I I think it also, my views about these questions have evolved, I think, as, um, yeah, as I've learned more, as I've seen responses to, you know, the, the filter bubble hypothesis. And I think if I were to like, characterize how they've changed, I think, when I wrote the book, I felt like, it you know, it was very kind of content focused lens on how digital information and relationships and ideas are formed and exchanged. And I think the danger of just thinking in terms of like, it's very easy to imagine the internet this way as sort of like people are a series of nodes and there are little bits of information going back and forth between them. And there's something about that view that's very naive to sort of human social psychology and group behavior which is um, it's sort of you tend to start imagining it as just kind of like, you know, rational minds exchanging information. And I don't think that's a generally like the, the main way to view groups of human beings. Like, I don't think we primarily um, operate at that kind of like rational level. I think we're, you know, we're, we're political animals, we're animals. And there's a whole bunch of other ways in which we like decide how to behave than just like uh, internalizing information. And so, you know, these days I really think about it as kind of a network of trust relationships and then kind of information can move along those trust relationships, but only to the extent that the, the, the relationships already exist. And so I think Part of part of the reason that I came to that conclusion is that, you know, th- I think if you read the filter bubble, it's easy to think like, oh, the problem is just I as a liberal um, don't consume enough Fox News. And if I did, then I would understand conservatives better. And empirically, we now know, like, that is not the case. Um, and, and in fact, often when people come into contact with sort of countervailing views, they get more biased. And, and I know this is true for myself. Like I'll I'll sort of, uh, I'll be like, Oh yeah, they are just as awful as I thought they were. And so, you know, I think the, the important piece, the piece that we have to facilitate is like building the human connections that then I can start to understand kind of in a relational way, the, the psyche and context of someone who thinks really differently from me or has a different set of views. But you know, that's not accomplished through the medium of content. And so, you know, that's where a lot of our work at New Public is headed is like, how do we build this architecture of trust along which, you know, you can have healthy conversations and good information can flourish? Um, Because I think sort of a bunch of the disinformation, misinformation problems that we have right now are sort of fundamentally like trust, trust and, and relationship problems. No, and I love that you kind of highlighted to this like human element of all of this, because for me personally, like when I think about, you know, technology or I think about like algorithms, for example, it can be easy to kind of be like, oh, those are in control and like humans are just, you know, it's like a very old argument almost that like the technology is forcing us to behave in certain ways. But I almost like that you've highlighted how it's like, no, these like basic, you know, wants and needs for human connection in a lot of ways can actually be super helpful when we're thinking about facilitating, you know, online interactions with one another and like how that trust that we have with one another, or the relationships that we have with other people really do help make these different things kind of happen or evolve. And I'm also glad that you brought up, you know, New Public. That's also something I wanted to ask you about was you're the co-director of New Public. Uh, what exactly is this community? And what kind of work happens there and in addition to what you've just previously kind of shared with us? Yeah, so so uh, New Public in a way sort of picked up where the filter bubble left off and 
working with Talia Stroud, who's a brilliant communication scholar at the University of Texas, Austin, you know, we started trying to think about, well, if you were to make an algorithm that instead of ranking content based on engagement or based on how many advertising views it was going to deliver, if you if you were to consider, you know, let's rank content on the basis of like good for democracy, what would that mean? What would that look like? That was kind of our starting point. And we ran right into the problem I just referenced, which is there's something about that content-focused sort of ranking lens that feels very um, disconnected from, from how we think about human beings and human social behavior. And so Talia had this thought of, well, what if we think about, instead of thinking about platforms as kind of feeds, let's think about them as spaces. And there's something very nice about when you start to consider what Facebook is like as a space or Twitter is like as a space, it's not just that you start considering design in a different way, but you sort of imagine people differently. Like when I imagine people in space, I imagine you know a group of people over here and another person watching them from a bench and trying to figure out what's going on. And you start to get into all of these kind of like nonverbal uh, human dynamics that are really important in how behavior happens. Um, and you also start to think about, well, what is, you know, how are the, the, how is the physical design of this space shifting what those dynamics are? So we, we ended up going down this deep dive on sort of urban design and what the internet can learn from, or what digital spaces can learn from urban design. And one of the conclusions that we came to was like, sort of obvious, which is if you if you look at healthy physical communities, we do reserve like a bunch of space as public space that is communally owned and that is really for the purpose of serving the community and pulling people together. And that's, you know, parks and that's town squares and it's libraries and it's schools. And, you know, sociologists tell us that these are really critical elements of how communities cohere. And when you try to apply that to digital space, you realize like, oh, we don't, we don't have any of those. Like at, at scale, you know, most of, of what's happening, it's as if it was happening in a mall or it's as if it was happening, you know, really inside a handful of, of big companies that have their own logic and their own imperatives. And so what New Public became was kind of, can we start to imagine what it looks like to build parks and libraries and kind of public institutions that uh, support healthy sociality in in digital space, and can we actually start to build them? And we just added uh, Deepti Doshi, who came to us from Facebook, who you know I think saw the limits of what you can do inside of that structure, and um, we're really trying to figure out like how do we build conversational spaces that are built around public serving values and that can help support some of the cohesion and public service that, you know, Facebook and Twitter are never going to do. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're having a conversation with Eli Pariser about the internet as public space. Yeah, I really love that because I think, again, kind of going back to what you were saying earlier too, just about like the human aspect of all of it, you know, drawing on sociology or these other places, you know, even just looking around at the world around us. I think that that's often something that I know I draw inspiration from when I'm thinking about like ideas or even how to reimagine or rework something is like, just look around you. Like, how do we function in like a bunch of these different ways and spaces? And so I love that your team has kind of essentially taken that and like, you know, translated it or is attempting to translate it to these internet, you know, connected spaces. Like, how do we 
make these face like spaces rather than this is a feed and you interact with a feed and like maybe you get responses to something you post, maybe you don't, but it's not necessarily like conversational, right? And so I think that's really lovely and I'm really glad that you all are doing that and I'm excited to, you know, follow and see what comes out of that project and many projects you all are doing. Um, And I'm kind of wondering too just about, you know, the present and like thinking about the current moment that we find ourselves facing with, you know, the industry at large, like technology industry, right? Like that has many layers to it, but specifically thinking about, you know, the major players in social media right now, you know, what opportunities for change do you kind of see existing within this world? Or do you, you know, maybe the opposite is is true is you're kind of like, ah, maybe we're stuck with these current models. And like, how do you kind of navigate that? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I, I actually think we're at a maybe the most exciting inflection point or pivot point that we've been in in 15 or 20 years in that space. I, I could be wrong. Maybe this is wishful thinking, but I, I sort of uh, something about the the ongoing debacle with Elon Musk trying to buy Twitter, I feel like is really demonstrating it feels like that that kind of big tech, big big social ecosystem, is um, collapsing under its own weight. And to me, that's because it's built on a set of kind of fairly indefensible premises in my mind, like the idea that you could have an algorithm or a singular design that would work for all of the cultures and all of the communities in the world feels to me like so laughably ridiculous that it's like kind of funny that we've accepted that that even might be possible. And I think now we're saying like, it definitely isn't possible. And Facebook can create, you know, enormous harms in countries where it's not paying any attention. And it turns out that what it's doing is very poorly suited to the, you know, media ecology of those countries. Not to mention the United States, you know, it's sort of a, a dark joke that I think the United States, the Facebook we get in the United States is the very best version of Facebook. Like this is this is as good as it gets and everywhere else uh, because the engineers aren't there, because the, the political will isn't there is, is even more problematic. But I think we're also seeing this in consumer behavior where people, I think increasingly, because the digital sort of quasi-public spaces that Facebook and Twitter offer, and I say quasi because they're actually owned by big companies, they're not really public, you know, because those spaces have turned out so badly with so much harassment and so much, you know, spam and trolling and ugliness, uh, people are kind of retreating and they're they're going to group chats or they're going to slacks or they're going to discords or other places where they feel like they have some more control over um, their digital environment. Now, on the one hand, from a filter bubble perspective, this is like only making the problem worse, right? Because, you know, at least on Facebook, there might be my like high school, you know, buddy who, you know, now is is very different for me politically, but we still kind of see each other's posts. Um, and when I retreat to my group chat, you know, maybe that guy falls out of the picture. But I think it, it also creates a lot of opportunity for... Uh, number one, kind of a human scale ecosystem, I think fundamentally is probably better for people. Like I think 3 billion person spaces are ungovernable in some true sense, whereas it is possible to have kind of some governance, some agency over a space that has a few thousand people in it um, or a few hundred. And then I think the other piece though, is that it, it is given this sort of hyper-fragmented environment, all the more reason to try to build, um, you know, public spaces that help do some of this, that, that call people into community with each other. And that's really what New Public is is trying to do. And I think the reason I say it's an exciting moment is just that I think there's there's a lot of space that's up for grabs right now in a way that just was not the case in 2010. Yeah, and I like also that you've highlighted too just the the ways that even these like newer 
you know, group chat, like Slack and Discord, like the prominence that those have gained as well within the last few years, I would say, like, I've even noticed that with my friend groups and stuff, like everybody's kind of connecting on these different spaces that I I just didn't know even existed, right? And so it also does, like you were saying about like the hope for like new entry points. I think it's a good reminder too, that like these things aren't necessarily just like set in stone. And like, these are the, these are the only companies we have that control how we interact with each other in these different ways. And like, that's it, you know, like that's as good as it gets. And so that's often something that, you know, I wrestle with too, is just like you're saying, like when you have billions of people on a platform, it does kind of feel daunting sometimes to kind of reimagine or think about what's gonna what's it gonna be like in like five years, right? Like how how is it gonna be different? You know, and that kind of brings me to another question for you, which is really about that work of envisioning and like imagining something different in the future. And would companies like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter would they play a role in society at all? Like if an ideal world existed for you or like what would what would it kind of look like? Yeah, I mean, so so my view is like I, I'm not I'm not a socialist in that sense. Like I, I, I think there's plenty of value in private institutions and businesses. And I think there will be spaces that absolutely provide a lot of value and are operated as businesses. And from a sociological standpoint, you can look at coffee shops or you can look at restaurant, you know, the, the, this is part of what delivers vitality and shared spaces to, to, people not not to mention you know jobs and goods and all the rest of it. So I absolutely think there's space for those kinds of entities in the future. I just think we were we are way over indexed for them right now and we're way over indexed toward, you know, if you want to think about it this way like we've got a kind of fast food um you know digital ecosystem rather than like a thriving restaurant scene. And so I think there's a question of, you know, how much do we want this to be a few big monopolies versus, you know, a, a kind of more multiplayer ecosystem. I think the argument for why that might be possible now, I think there are a couple of reasons why that might be possible. One is, you know, it, it used to be almost technically uh, insurmountably hard to build something like a Facebook or a Twitter, you know, just the actual, the actual engineering of it was hugely difficult. And I'm old enough to remember like Twitter used to go down almost daily. Like it was like really hard for years and years for Twitter just to stay up as a service. You know, today, a bunch of that has been commoditized you can buy, you know, Amazon Web Services and all of a sudden have as much traffic as you want. Just a bunch of those technical problems have have gone away. And then I think the other piece is like the shift to mobile phones has made easier some of the kind of basic processes of moving a group of people from one place to another. So there used to be this sense with Facebook of like, where are you going to go? Like, that's the only place your friends are. And I guess my experience, and I don't know if this is yours, Bailey, is like, it doesn't feel that way that much. Any, like, like if I want to pull my crew into WhatsApp or whatever, like, that's just like not that hard of a problem. WhatsApp, I know, is a bad example, still owned by Facebook. But let's say, uh, you know, Zoom or Slack or whatever, you know, uh, it just doesn't feel like an insurmountable barrier anymore. And so what that does is it sort of democratizes the the possibility of space making in the way in a way that I think is really exciting. And it sort of suggests that the pendulum swinging from uh, the technical constraints to kind of the cultural ones. So it's less like, is it possible? And more like, do I want to spend time here when I have an infinite bunch of choices about where I might spend time? No, I think, and I, I too relate to that, even especially thinking about the last few years when we had to kind of get creative with how we socialize with one another. Um, I definitely noticed even in my own friend group, right, we were kind of starting to organize times to meet with one another on Zoom and not necessarily on these other platforms, even though I know 
Zoom again is you know, like another yeah. situation, but it is interesting how we are kind of shifting. And, and this is a moment where I, and I love what you said about moving from like the technical constraints to like the cultural opportunities almost is like, what do we want? And that kind of is interesting in like a way to give, give hope almost to these different ways of reimagining and kind of coming up with, you know, how could this actually happen? And like, yeah, well, we're already seeing behaviorally people are already doing that kind of work for a lot of, you know, different situations. So I love that you highlighted that. And I also wanted to ask too about, you know, I mentioned in your bio, you have experiences kind of building or like working to build these different online platforms. And would you like to share just a little bit about, you know, maybe some of that, that work and like what that process has been like, and maybe even some success that you've seen of, of that work? Yeah, I mean, um, with New Public, you know, we're still in early early days, but I think I'll just say like my approach for better or worth, worse is is very much about kind of making, you know, making making good things and civic things and things that are good for democracy like really fun, exciting, attractive, joyful I think that's often a place where we go awry um, is, yeah, there's sort of worthy intentions, but it feels pretty, pretty boring, pretty drab. And, you know, I think we imagine that just because everyone feels like it's obligatory, that that's enough to keep people engaged with some of these really important, you know, whether it's information or whether it's part of being part of the democratic process. And, you know, I take a lot of inspiration from like, uh, you know, if you want to talk about the democratic process, it's like some of the best work that happened in 2020 was this, this work around party at the polls and really having these kind of almost like carnival atmosphere when people go to vote. And there's really no, like that, that, that fits, that makes sense. Uh, it, it, it should be uh, a joyful and liberatory act. It should feel like something worth celebrating. But I think we tend to kind of like, it, it tends to have this veneer of kind of bureaucratic grayness to it. Um, and so uh, similarly with Upworthy, you know, with Upworthy, we were trying to kind of highlight and build, uh, you know, social social content that traveled um, but we were really focused on like, let's, let's not tune out, you know, sort of how to make this emotionally compelling, how to make it riveting storytelling, you know, um, let's, let's work to, to create engagement. And in digital space, I think a lot about public art for the same reason. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to, to the bean in Chicago, the big like mirror, uh, sculpture, but it's like, I always think about the bean because it's this, you know, for people who haven't seen it, it's like this gigantic metal sculpture that has a lot of concave and convex surfaces so that it's sort of like a funhouse mirror uh, as a sculpture, essentially. And what's fun about it is like people immediately want to play with it and they want to play with each other through it. And so very quickly, you're kind of pulling people into relationship with each other around this other object. And I just think like that is that's the kind of public space that we need. It's not, you know, some some boring town square being lectured at. It's actually like kind of being pulled by by magnetism into relationship with each other. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're having a conversation with Eli Pariser about the internet as public space. Yeah, I, I love that too, because I think you're so right. Like, 
you know, I've seen so many pictures. Like every time people visit Chicago, I'm from the Midwest originally, and I feel mm-hmm. like it's kind of one of those things like you see people posting about is just their experience at this space that on the surface, like if you think about it at its core, it's like it's like a I don't know what it's made of, but like it's a thing that's just like designed like a kidney bean and it's just right there in the city. And you're like, <laughs> but something about it is so magical at the same time and like fun and I've also liked that you've highlighted too the different party at the poll events and like things like that where people are starting to kind of like try to get excitement generated around what I think maybe might be mundane. And I think you're also right too, like so much of when I engage with, you know, the democratic process or or do different things, it feels very like paperwork and kind of boring and like, here's my ballot that's like plain colors and just not it's not like you kind of have to do some work before you go in there right i gotta know who i'm gonna vote for and like what they stand so there's like all of these different dimensions to it right but i i love that you've highlighted that like well no we don't just necessarily have to think about voting in that way and similarly we don't have to think about engaging online in that way you know so i like that you've done that (laughs) and i think like you know this is part of when i when i look at like well what do we what do we use our public spaces for in the physical world? You know, we reserve very little of our public space in the physical world for like places where you walk up to strangers and tell them you're like most incendiary political position. And that's because like people don't generally like that. Like it's not generally talking to strangers about some intense political thing. It's like hard and not really what most people seek out. What what do we reserve public space for like a lot of play right like playgrounds soccer fields tennis courts like uh basketball you know like like if you actually look at what we have decided are you know important to create public space for a lot of it is like places where people can play together and i think that's really important because that's how we come into contact with people who are unlike us in sort of the most appealing and gentle way, right? Like, I don't know that it was deliberately designed this way, but it could have been deliberately designed this way because, you know, you don't, you need to build some rapport before you can go to the like really intense, you know, town meeting or, or, or hearing committee or whatever and, and get into a big argument. And I feel like that kind of soft, that soft rapport building, those spaces are the ones that are most uh, missing from our digital lives. I think you're so right to bring that aspect up as well, just because, you know, even thinking about my own, you know, social media use, it's like, I'm not just going to like post necessarily. I'm not, maybe I'm, you know, one of the few that isn't like this, but I don't tend to just jump online and be like, here's everything you need to know about my political opinion and like, just put it out there for the ether, you know? (laughs) So it is interesting because yeah, it's usually once I've gotten to know someone and you have that relationship, again, going back to what you mentioned towards the beginning of this conversation, that that relationship piece and that trust building is super important. And I I remember while you were talking, I was like, oh, yeah, like the playground was a great place to start to do that with people. And, you know, it's it's often those like simple things about our lives that are the most meaningful. So when you're thinking about, you know, building your different platforms or like, you know, potentially even thinking about how to make spaces online fun, you know, what do you want to do? Or like, how do you do that? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to take a lot of experiment, uh, experimentation. Um, and, you know, there, there's a movement in urbanism that's sort of parallel to this, where, where for a long time it was like, we're going to design a park, We'll hire some fancy architect. They're going to like sweat over the fountain. And then like the designers are out and people have to live with it for the next 40 years. And there's this new kind of like fast, cheap and iterative model that's like, hey, let's like try some stuff out with some hay bales and some, you know, movable chairs, see how it's pulling people into the space and then like work with that until you get something that's really working for people. And maybe even then, like maybe you then build the concrete version or maybe you actually like leave it flexible so that other people can reconfigure it. Um, But it's much more responsive to the community. It's much more able to 
you can troubleshoot it based on like who's showing up and who's not. You, you, you might notice that there's an accessibility issue that you hadn't thought of and you can address that. So I think like that experiment of that, that, that process of playing extends to the way that we ought to be developing, which is really like in, in alongside community and in community rather than like someone going, going into like a office building coming out with the grand, you know, plan for the, for the internet of the future. You know, I think we're at New Public, we're looking at a bunch of areas where we think there are opportunities for better kinds of digital spaces and digital conversations. I'll give you one example that we're in the middle of right now, which is working with some parents at schools in Oakland. Um, but really around, you know, we, we think it's a fascinating opportunity. Yeah, how would you build a digital space that connects caregivers around a particular school? And the reason we think that's interesting is, you know, schools do attract, in many cases, when they're not super segregated, a pretty diverse group of parents and caregivers. But there's very little that we do as a society to connect those people to each other. It's like an unrealized opportunity. And in fact, what often happens is kind of the high income or the white parents segregate themselves um, and, and other groups cluster. And so you know, this seems like exactly the kind of space where you might be able to build some of this relational cross-connection. And yeah, it's exciting and it's fun. And 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 some of the ideas that we're exploring are like, what if, you know, how could you redesign for digital space the experience that sort of like pride and amusement and entertainment of walking through a school hallway and seeing all the stuff that kids have been up to? Like kids as a focal point for cross-connection seems like such a natural um, and fun way to build that kind of soft uh, connection. And yet, mostly you have to physically go to the school. The parents who are already probably the most alienated from the schools that we have are the ones that can least spend time in the schools often because they're working jobs that don't allow them that kind of flexibility. This seems like a great opportunity to like think really differently about digital space. And so that's kind of the, the we're looking at a bunch of areas like that where where you can start to imagine like, well, there's some of the ingredients here. How do we mix them in the right way? You know, that's a fantastic example. And again, I think super important to kind of rethink because I think you're all, all absolutely right. Like it is difficult for so many reasons for people to kind of all come together and connect, like especially around something like education for their children or <laughs> like those that they care for. Um, and that kind of brings me back to that, you know, what we were talking about earlier, which was that idea of like the universalization almost of the way platforms, you know, the big ones operate is like this assumption that like there are universal, you know, things about everybody and everything. And like, that's just how it is when actually it's very, you know, like you were saying, like culture specific or just different kinds of, of specific that doesn't fit for every community. So when I'm thinking about that and I'm thinking about the future of, you know, the internet and online spaces, how do you kind of think about like the universal versus like the, the very specific, you know, and should the spaces reflect the yeah. communities that they function in or should there be some kind of like overarching way that everyone comes together or converges? Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm increasingly kind of like a digital localist. And that's not to say that I don't think that we can have, you know, global cross connection. But I do think, yeah, the problem of connecting billions of people, everyone to everyone, that's a really hard problem. I don't totally know how you do it. And it's certainly not the internet that we have right now. And I think, you know, this notion of kind of making it possible more to have some local cultures, some local regulatory regimes, not necessarily geographically local, but having that quality of kind of cultural specificity of deep ownership of evolution over time, and then figuring out kind of how do we build some, some federation on top of that that allows us to like build those communities together feels to me like, um, more exciting as an internet I want to live in or bring my kids into than, uh, you know, sort of a lowest common denominator soup. Uh, and so, you know, I think there's a lot of hard problems to be worked out in that vision, but that's kind of where, where we're headed. No, I, again, I, I really do love that. And I like that you've 
really highlighted that throughout this whole conversation is just like the assumptions I think that have been made about people or even not necessarily even considering people who are going to be, you know, enjoying or being like experiencing the different spaces that we have. I think that has led to so many of the problems that we see today. And I think, I think that idea of like almost a decentralized, you know, web, I think is really lovely and beautiful. And I think that it is interesting and something that I'm glad that people like you are spending time working through and problem solving and how that's going to help create this future that hopefully will be beneficial for more and like all of us. Like hopefully that would be the dream is like everyone can benefit from this, right? But, you know, that that was something also I found in, in your Twitter bio, which was that that quote being like the pessimist of the intellect and optimist of the will from Antonio Gramsci. How does that kind of guide you? And I know that was like a very specific <laughs> quote to have in your bio. So like, what does it mean for you? Oh, I, you know, I'm not like a huge like Gramsci scholar or anything. You know, to me, I just sort of like the idea of being very attuned intellectually to the challenges and criticisms and sort of intellectually humble while not losing a sense of optimism and and pushing forward um, in terms of, you know, the, the heart and the will. Um, that, that we kind of have to do both of those things um, because these are really complex problems. And on the one hand, like complexity can yield paralysis. And on the other hand, it can yield like oversimplification. And so finding ways to like be active in, a, in, in you know, and try to understand the, the consequences of our actions while not um, getting paralyzed to me is like sort of the key to uh, making some progress in the 21st century. <laughs> this is also a quote that it was. I was really blown away by too, just that you had it in your bio because I just learned about it this past <laughs> semester myself. And I was like really struck by those words because I think it is, especially now, so difficult sometimes to kind of keep that spirit alive, keep the, the hopefulness about the mm. situations we face, the issues we face, you know, keep that that optimism, you know, that this kind of beckons us to while also still maintaining that the critical, right? Like, you know, we can be critical of the systems that we are in. We can be critical of the platforms we use, but we can't necessarily just stop there. You know, how can we envision and do better? And I think that even looking back on history too, it's often those questions, those moments when we do see some new things emerge and, so I, I love that also you you had that in there, and I'm glad that's what that means to you. Um, you know, another thing that I'm thinking about as well is just kind of overall, like going back to almost this idea of we have these billions and billions of people on these, you know, different platforms. And like, is it possible, you know, ideally <laughs> to see those companies change? Like, are they going to have to adopt these kinds of things? Or are you kind of seeing that like, kind of what we were mentioning earlier about, you know, Twitter's acquisition pending um, kind of yeah. happening and like all of this, are you kind of envisioning a future in which those those huge companies are like kind of no longer necessarily in the picture or they have a different role? I mean, I guess I imagine them as tamed, trimmed, you know, from their role right now. Like, like and I think it's really important, you know, there is a part of this that is an act of imagination, which is, it's we're so accustomed to orienting around them and thinking like, well, how do we make Facebook a little bit better? Or how do we, what are we going to do with Facebook? And to me, you know, that's sort of a, not the place you want to start. Um, like we, we ought to be starting from what's the kind of digital ecology that we want. And then, you know, where does Facebook fit into that, if at all? And um and I think reclaiming some agency over, you know, the, the, I think that the, one of the worst, one of the worst myths about our digital environment is that it's kind of this out of control thing that it's just some historical process that's unfolding that we have no agency over. Like that is not the the story of the history of media. People make very strong choices. Uh, cultures make very strong choices about how they want to structure their media who gets to play what kind of role. And those have big consequences in terms of the development of those those cultures. And you can look at the history of radio and TV, development of public media in a lot of other countries, you know, as really strong analogs to the moment that we're in now. So I think 
you know, I'd like to see us, you know, kind of rev up our public imagination to really think about, to, to remember that we are capable of building public institutions um, in the United States and and elsewhere, and that this might be a moment that calls for them and that we should kind of be imagining into what that world looks like. <laughs> I, 10 out of 10, I, I think that's so important. And that's kind of, I think the calling for all of us, right, is that reclamation almost of our own agency that seems often, I feel, very obfuscated. It's like, well, you're just another one of the billion on this platform and that's kind of it, right? And when you do start to do that work of like figuring out like, well, how do I operate in my community? Or like when you look around yourself, you can kind of start to see like, I do this in so many other aspects of my life. Why can't it be also online? Or why can't the internet look like this too? So again, I'm glad that you've pointed that out and reminded us of that because it's so important. And kind of as our conversation is is wrapping up, I was wondering, you know, if you could share a little bit about like what's coming next for you. Is there any exciting things on the horizon, near and far, and like maybe the questions that you're still kind of grappling with? Yeah, I mean, we're we're moving into this really um, fertile and challenging and interesting and exciting moment of kind of building and experimentation and looking for projects to to, you know, help with people to be collaborating with and, you know, ways to build an ecosystem around people who are excited by this notion of digital public space. So that's, you know, that's what I wake up thinking about and go to sleep thinking about. And other other than like my kids and my wife, like that's, that's the, uh, that's the big project right now. And you know, I think it's going to be a really exciting next few years, just as these things start to take shape um, and gain some traction. Yeah. And for people that are interested in like learning more about your work, like, do you have any recommendations on where they could potentially go um, to figure out like maybe even your past projects or even current? Like, do you have any recommendations? Yeah, yeah no, we have a, a newsletter at New Public. Um, if you just go to newpublic.org, there's an easy sign up there um, that comes out weekly that sort of of some some exploration of these ideas and you know we're we're still on the big uh you know on on twitter uh as new public um so you can find us there too thank you so much eli like again this was such a great conversation and i think encouraging you know for listeners to be reminded of their own agency but also too that there are lots of people out there like y'all that are working very hard and diligently asking tough questions and spending the time working through the different, you know, challenges that arise from this type of, you know, reimagining, reworking. And I'm grateful uh, to be reminded of that as well. So thank you so much for sharing all of it. And I wish you all the best as well with everything that's coming up for you all. And thank you, Bailey. This has been really fun and appreciate your work as well, helping people engage with the stuff. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Eli Pariser. If you'd like to find out more about his new public work, you can visit newpublic.org. I'm Bailey Troutman, today's host of Looks Like New, a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu slash lab slash medlab. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving positive reviews will help our conversations reach more listeners. We would love to hear your comments or guest ideas. You can reach us by emailing medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us for another conversation next month.